welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour, the first podcast completely dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. My name is Carrie Gabrielson, and I'm a patient living with HEDS and related conditions. And today, I'm joined by Nia Clark, a journalist and patient also living with HEDS and related conditions. Nia, hello. Hey, Carrie. Today, Nia and I are going to be interviewing Dr. Abby McElroy, Doctor of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. McElroy has an EDS-like syndrome herself, and her work focuses on the research and treatment of animals with EDS. Dr. McElroy received her bachelor's degree in neuroscience from Smith College, her Doctor of Veterinary Medicine from the Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine at Tufts University, and her Master of Science degree from Michigan State University College of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. McElroy currently works as a postdoctoral research associate in the Department of Neurosurgery at Rhode Island Hospital, where her research focuses on occult tethered cord and myodural bridge dysfunction in EDS. She also works part-time as a small animal veterinarian and consults worldwide on veterinary EDS cases. Dr. McElroy, hello, and welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Happy to be here today to uh, talk about the exciting world of uh, EDS and veterinary medicine, which is not a topic that we get to discuss very often. Definitely. All right, let's start off by talking about your own personal experience with EDS. Can you just tell us a little bit about your story and how you were diagnosed? Also, can you just explain what your symptoms are? Sure. So um, I grew up in West Virginia and was kind of, you know, the typical horse crazy kid. Um, so I had a very active childhood, um, but always had a lot of orthopedic injuries. So uh, when I was really young, I had two uh, dislocations. I think one was my wrist and one was my elbow uh, that happened when I was playing with my dad, which I'm sure nowadays would raise some questions. But back in the 90s, uh, nobody was too concerned. I had a lot of broken bones growing up. But you know, as I said, I rode horses pretty competitively. So it was sort of a, a par for the course type thing. I had a few issues with fainting as a young kid, but nothing too severe. You know, like I said, I was extremely active. So as a high school student, I was working at a barn unloading two, 300 bales of hay a week um, and riding probably seven, eight horses a day. Um, I started my undergrad career at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts in 2009. And during my first semester, I contracted uh, H1N1, so swine flu, and then had a bad fall from my horse. And um, following those two incidents, I developed severe pain after eating and uh, quickly lost over 30 pounds. At the time, it was felt that I had gallstones, but as the symptoms got more and more severe and I started to develop really severe um, dysautonomia-related symptoms, it was quickly clear that there was something else going on. Um, around this time, I was jogging to my car and coughed, and I broke four ribs. So I ended up taking a medical leave of absence for one semester, because at that point, I was down to about uh, 99, 98 pounds. My family is privileged enough to be able to get me the best medical care. So I ended up going to Mayo Clinic, where initially, we were discussing diagnoses that were terrifying to a 19-year-old, so uh, neurodegenerative diseases, leukemia, lymphoma, all those really scary things. But what it ended up being was severe gastroparesis, uh, hyperadrenergic POTS, uh, and a rare form of EDS or EDS-like syndrome. Uh, And then I was 
later diagnosed with a Chiari malformation, tethered cord, uh, and some additional instability in my spine. Um, so several members of my family have uh, a very uncommon lung disorder called Munier-Kuhn syndrome, which causes laxity of the trachea, bronchi, and lung tissue. It's, it's been described in the literature about 100 times and is often linked to connective tissue disorders. So we, as, as a family, underwent whole genome sequencing due to the uncommon nature of the lung disease plus the slightly odd nature of my EDS and the fact that at that point I'd had 18 fractures, about half of which were non-traumatic, which revealed a uh, mutation of unknown significance in our family that has not been observed before. So at this point, we just call it an EDS-like syndrome because it basically has all of the hallmarks of hypermobile EDS plus some additional things like the lung disease. But I have done quite well since then. So I basically outgrew the gastroparesis. Uh, I don't have many issues with the POTS anymore. I had tethered cord release. I, I do pretty well with the Chiari without surgery. But I want to emphasize that, you know, I, I know that my family is incredibly privileged in terms of being able to get me all the best care. And during that uh, initial period in college, when I was so sick, they were able to fly me from specialist to specialist. And in, in terms of you know, they were able to get me in to see Frank Amano, Henderson, Klinga, Chopra. And I understand that not everyone has those kinds of experiences. And I know how fortunate I was. Um, and I also think in my case that the initial um, exacerbation of the POTS and the gastroparesis was likely in part post-viral or post-traumatic because I had that uh, experience with H1N1 and the, the fall from the horse. So I think um, it was the perfect storm of circumstances initially, but I've, I've been very uh, lucky to have done so well since then, except for um, a lot of uh, persistent back pain, which I still deal with. Um, so can I, did you say you saw Dr. Klinga? Uh, so I, I actually work for Dr. Klinga. So a little <laughs> bit about my professional history. I, um, as I said, went to undergrad at Smith College where I majored in neuroscience. Following that, I received my doctorate in veterinary medicine uh, at, at Tufts University. Following that, I did a master's degree at Michigan State. So for my master's, I looked at neurologic complications in horses with a rare form of, of EDS. And during my master's degree, I was co-mentored by Dr. Ann Rashmuir, who is an expert on EDS in horses, and Petra Klinga, who, as we all know and love, is a neurosurgeon and expert in neurologic complications, primarily tethered cord in humans. Um, and since my master's, I have been Dr. Klinga's uh, postdoctoral research associate at Rhode Island Hospital. That's so weird. So Dr. Klinga just did my tethered cord surgery in uh, this past March. So just a couple of months ago. Um, so it's a very small EDS related community, I guess. It is. So yeah, Dr. Klinga also did my tethered cord release years ago, which is how I met her. She's oh, a, a wonderful person, a great boss. She is. I I don't know if anybody knows what tethered cord is, but it, um, it's, do you want to explain that really quickly since we're going on a little bit about it? Uh, yeah. So tethered cord occurs when um, your phylum, which is basically uh, it's a fibrous collagenous band that comes off of the base of the spinal cord. And during uh, embryonic development, your phylum is actually spinal cord. So uh, late in embryologic development, the phylum basically dies off. And instead of being spinal cord, it becomes um, a collagenous band that stabilizes the base of the cord. So when you flex and extend your spine, uh, it prevents it from basically flopping around too much. 
So when you have tethered cord, it basically means that the phylum is too tight. So it's putting too much tension on the spinal cord, either by virtue of being mechanically tethered, so being mechanically pulled down, or by having inelastic tissue within the phylum, which leads to leads the phylum to not be able to do its job properly of stabilizing the cord at the level of the conus. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Yeah, great. Thanks for that overview of your own um, experience. And now to kind of segue a little bit, um, would you mind giving us the history of Ehlers-Danlos in veterinary medicine um, with, I guess, your experiences, maybe some anecdotal experiences? Sure. So EDS occurs in dogs, cats, horses, sheep, cattle, rabbits, and mink. So I guess I'll go through it kind of species by species. EDS, it's a little bit confusing, I think, first of all, when we learn about it uh, as veterinarians in school, because it has so many names and animals, which is something that I'm kind of trying to change, because I think that some of the messaging gets lost by having all of these different terms. I think probably we should just call it either EDS or EDS-like syndrome. <laughs> so in school, we often learn about it as cutaneous asemia, which basically just means weak skin, dermatosporaxis, which means weak skin, or um, uh, a personal favorite, which is rubber puppy syndrome, which we should probably <laughs> get rid of as a term. So there's three forms that we know of that occur in horses. There's likely more, but the, these three are, are the best defined. So HERDA, which is what I did my master's on, is hereditary equine regional dermal asthenia, which basically means uh, regional areas of weak skin. So it was first described in 1978. And basically what happened was uh, there was a horse that was born in 1944 named Poco Bueno. He was a quarter horse and he was just wildly popular. He was an exceptional athlete. So everyone wanted to breed their horses to him or to his descendants. And unfortunately, either Poco Bueno or his mother, uh, whose name was Miss Taylor, carried this autosomal recessive mutation for Herda. And the mutation is in a gene called peptidyl proleal cis-trans isomerase B, which is actually not a mutation that causes EDS in humans. Uh, in humans, it causes actually a lethal form of osteogenesis imperfecta. But in horses, it causes um, a severe form of EDS. So it causes severe skin fragility, uh, joint laxity. Anecdotally, they're more prone to fractures. They're very prone to ocular fragility. Um, and they have very weak heart valves. So they're prone to things like um, we would think of as mitral valve prolapse in humans. Um, so the mutation for that was described in 2007. And actually to register um, like an intact male horse that you're planning to breed with the quarter horse society, you're required to have the horse tested for that mutation. But as I said, it's autosomal recessive. So you only need, you need one copy of it to be a carrier. But if you have two copies of the bad gene, you have an affected horse. So a horse that has EDS. But the kind of unfortunate situation is that the, the carriers of HERDA, so the horses that have one copy of the gene, but that are presumably unaffected are just tremendous athletes. So they seem to have an athletic advantage over quote unquote normal horses, which may be because while they're not affected to a pathologic degree, they, they may have some degree of joint hypermobility that we're just not really picking up on. So people do attempt to breed to get carriers. So because of that, this mutation is sort of propagated through the gene pool and it's been very hard to get rid of. 
The other two forms in horses are warm blood fragile foal syndrome, um, which occurs in, in warm blood horses. Uh, it's caused by the PLOD1 gene, which is the same gene that causes kyphoscoliotic EDS in humans. Um, it has about a 9 to 11% carrier frequency. Um, unfortunately, that one is fatal at birth. So that is one that, you know, people are working very hard to get rid of in terms of, of that deleterious mutation in the gene pool. Um, it's also autosomal recessive. There's a newly described, as of 2016, B4 GOLT7 mutation in Frisian horses, which is similar to spondylodysplastic EDS. So it causes uh, dwarfism, joint laxity, uh, those kind of issues. Uh, So it's very, very, very uncommon. It's only been described uh, a handful of times. EDS in dogs was possibly described as early as the 1940s, but the there were more case reports that started coming out like 1960s, 1970s. So there have been three um, mutations described so far. So the ADAMTS2 gene, which is what causes dermatospraxis EDS in humans, has been described. The COL5A1 gene, so classical EDS, and then the TNXB, so the tenacin X uh, mutation, has been described in dogs. Uh, EDS in cats was described in the early 1970s. Um, there are several forms that occur in cats. We only know of one genetic mutation so far, so that's the COL5A1. So classical EDS uh, was described in a domestic short hair. Um, and then there seems to be an increased prevalence of EDS in Himalayan cats and Burmese cats. Uh, the Burmese cats have a really unique presentation. They get these sort of uh, necrotic Escher-type lesions on their skin. And then potentially there's a, a higher incidence in, in Siamese cats. So kind of an interesting anecdote. In the 1800s and 1900s, there started being all of these reports of uh, winged cats. So people would report uh, cats with wings walking around. I think England had a lot of these reports. Uh, Switzerland and Sweden had some reports. So basically what uh, what was discovered is people were reporting cats that had these uh kind of appendages made of skin that were hanging down on either side. And they thought they were these mythological beings when really they were cats with uh, severe forms of EDS. So people would like, I don't know, go out and try to capture them. And then there was this huge custody dispute over one of these winged cats in, in England, which I think ended up like all over the newspaper and they had to go to court over it. I mean, it was, it was quite the uh, cultural phenomenon for a while. Interesting. Yeah. And to talk about another uh, cultural phenomenon, um, uh, Dr. McElroy has actually adopted a cat with EDS, who's a bit of an uh, Instagram celebrity. Um, So if you could tell us a little bit about him and his experience, that'd be great. Yeah. So I I swore I wasn't going to take any of these animals home, but of course I ended up with Reed. I said I was just going to, you know, go to the shelter to to look at him, but that never really is what happens. It's what I always tell owners who come in our clinic is that you you don't really go to look, it's always going to come home with you. Um, So Reed is a almost two year old domestic medium hair cat with a moderate to severe form of EDS, probably classical EDS. He's very cute. He is a a mild uh, Instagram celebrity, small Instagram celebrity. His Instagram is Reed Reed underscore EDS if anyone wants to follow him. Reed is a very difficult cat to own. So he has had many, many, many large skin lacerations, some of which have required general anesthesia to close, some of which are able to be closed with skin glue at home. 
But yeah, he's a very cute guy. He has a good team that looks after him, including um, me, a neurologist, a cardiologist, a dermatologist, a physical therapist. So he's a he's a lucky guy. <laughs> Absolutely. And this is a good reminder for me as the lawyer to stick in the standard disclaimer um, that Dr. McElroy's discussion is in the context of veterinary medicine only, so it's not um, applicable to humans, and she may discuss discuss some off-label usage of medication, um, but again, in the context of veterinary medicine only, so that's where we're having this discussion. Yeah. You know, her talking about her own experiences, obviously anecdotal, and she's telling her story, but what the scientific context, content of what we're talking about is um, veterinary in, in nature. Yeah, and none of this is meant to be medical advice. So any uh, any care regarding your own animals should go through your own veterinarian, and um, you should ask your own veterinarian questions. I'm always happy to to speak to other veterinarians if your vet wants to contact me. But this is not medical advice, and as Carrie said, some of this does discuss off label use of medications. Good reminder. Um, and yeah, briefly, if you could just tell us a little bit about EDS and kind of the rest of um, yeah. your experience. So well, the other species that's been reported in are sheep, cattle, rabbits, and mink. Uh, so sheep and cattle, kind of similar forms to horses. Uh, it's uh, dermatosporaxis EDS, so the ADAMTS2 mutation. Um, so it causes severe skin fragility. And them, um, not much else is reported in the literature in terms of the, the phenotype in those animals other than the skin fragility. Mink, there's not much known in, in terms of the genetic mutation. Um, it's, it's known that it caused severe skin fragility and uh, was described a few times in the 70s and 80s, was likely a form of dermatosporaxis EDS. Rabbits, there are a handful of case reports from uh, like the 70s through the 90s, reporting severe skin fragility was thought to be dermatosporaxis EDS, but there was no uh, genetic sequencing done. But a classmate of mine from vet school diagnosed a rabbit recently with EDS who didn't really have severe skin fragility, but she did have skin hyperextensibility, so more similar to classical EDS. So we just had whole genome sequencing done on her, and we're looking forward to publishing the results in the not-too-distant future. Great. And could you tell us a little bit about the overall prevalence of EDS in animals? Yeah. So, I mean, in horses, um, we know probably the most about it. So the herd of horses, if you look at all quarter horses, the carrier frequency is about 3.5%, so pretty low. But if you look at kind of the elite cutting and reining horse lines, so cutting and reining are two types of riding, the carrier frequency jumps to almost 29%. And that's because of what we discussed earlier with the fact that some of the horses that are carriers are just tremendous athletes. And in those disciplines, they're attempting to breed to get that, that mutation. And also, um, those are the disciplines that the, the Poco Bueno, so that initial carrier, was... Um, was really popular in, in terms of, of breeding back to. So it's not very surprising that it's such a high, um, high rate of carriers. As I said before, for warm blood fragile foal, it's probably around a nine to 11% carrier frequency. We just don't have a lot of good information in terms of how many horses are actually affected because a lot of times when, when people breed an affected foal, it's not really reported. Dogs and cats, we really don't know. I would say in the one in 50,000 to one in 100,000 range. Oh, wow. If I had to guess. That's very interesting. And so 
I guess maybe a little bit it speaks to different objectives in breeding uh, or human breeding of horses versus dogs and cats. Um, and you spoke a little bit about some potential explanations for why the incidence is is high in horses, but also in some ways maybe lower than we'd expect. Mm-hmm. Um, you have theories on the overall performance. I mean, d- does a an increased degree of flexibility, you know, allow for to be able to you know compete athletically, especially in in the younger years, and then maybe you have more osteoarthritis or more issues, you know, as you age. Yeah. So, I mean, I think with the carriers, and again, we don't know for sure that they're more um, hypermobile. That's just a theory that I have and some other people have stated just based on the fact that they're performing at such a high level compared to other horses. You know, I think if you look at some human Olympic athletes, some of them are not quite they're not quite normal from a flexibility standpoint, but they're not really diagnosable with a connective tissue disorder. So, I think it could be that kind of situation where they uh, are kind of super athletes without having the deleterious effects of a mutation. But that said, nobody has studied whether they're kind of making all this money and having all this success early on in their careers and then developing osteoarthritis or getting other injuries sooner than a horse without, um, without a copy of this gene, which is certainly possible. Yeah, interesting. And um, I guess let's talk a little bit about the phenotype, the mutations by species and their similarities and dissimilarities to humans. Yeah, so I think one um, area where there's a little bit of confusion about EDS in animals versus humans is um, surrounding the skin and the joints. So the kind of the hallmark of EDS in animals is severe skin fragility. So that's really something that we see across species and across all of these mutations. They really all have some degree of skin fragility. Um, It varies a little bit by mutation and by species, but that's really the first thing we look for is skin fragility and then skin hyperextensibility. Joint hypermobility varies a little bit by species. We definitely see it in horses, um, although, you know, horses are a fairly uh, stiff species to begin with, so it can be a little harder to appreciate. Joint hypermobility is something we see a little bit more often in dogs. We don't see it very often in cats, though cats are so kind of floppy and flexible in general, it can be harder to appreciate. Cardiac abnormalities, uh, as I said, in horses, there was a study done on the heart valves, uh, and it showed that the valves are a little bit weaker and floppier in horses that have EDS compared to, to normal horses. There's not been a lot of studies done in small animals looking at the cardiac effects, but there are several reports of uh, fatal vascular ruptures, unfortunately, in small animals. And then ophthalmic issues are present across species. So the corneas tend to be very fragile. They can get lens luxations, retinal detachments, those kind of issues that we see in humans. Gastrointestinal effects, uh, we definitely see. So hernias and susceptions, occasionally like chronic diarrhea type issues we'll see. And then um, neurologic effects. I mean, that's what I study for a living. So that's something that we're definitely looking into. Um, they're not really things that have been reported. I did my master's looking at the phylum in horses, and we found that the phylum was abnormal in the herd of horses compared to controls. But that said, they didn't have any clinical symptoms of tethering. But, you know, we also have situations like in dogs, we have Cavalier King Charles Spaniels who have Chiari malformation, luxating patella and heart disease. So, you know, 
it's a connective tissue like disorder, but whether that will end up being EDS is kind of unknown at this point. And could you could you tell us a little bit about the misconceptions when it comes to EDS in the veterinary context? Yeah, so I think one thing is that um, kind of as I said, there, there's a lot of uh, misconceptions surrounding the symptoms. Where I think a lot of people think it's it's just joint hypermobility in animals, or that there's a hypermobile EDS-like phenotype in animals. And the problem is there probably is a form of hypermobile EDS in animals. So I already brought up the Cavalier King Charles Spaniels that have the the Chiari, the the mitral valve prolapse, and the um, luxating patella. That said, we don't have a means of diagnosing hypermobile EDS because we don't have a we don't have anything like the Biden score and we don't have any framework for diagnosing it. So at this point, it's not appropriate to diagnose hypermobile EDS in animals. You know, like I said, I'm not saying that it, it doesn't exist. We just can't diagnose it at this point. There was a very interesting paper that came out recently that looked at dogs with luxating patella and did find that they have some generalized collagen abnormalities and they do have some skin extensibility. But that said, we just need a better diagnostic criteria if we're going to start diagnosing it. But I think what people need to understand is the types of EDS we're talking about in animals are the types that cause the really, really severe wounds, can cause aneurysms, and unfortunately are often types that result in euthanasia. So I I do get a lot of emails from people asking about adopting these animals, and I just want to make sure they know kind of what they're getting into in terms of uh, these are extremely expensive animals to own. I usually say budget like one to $2,000 a month for wound care. And then they can unfortunately be a very sad animals to own. Mm-hmm. And that's a good caveat, again, to just for me as the lawyer thinking of this to mention that there are profound differences between the human and animal population. So just because, you know, a lot of animals have these uh, really disastrous, um, you know, especially end of life and complications um, doesn't mean that humans are subject to, you know, the same sorts of range of life issues. We have a whole nother bucket of complications. So just yeah, another friendly mention of that. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the different treatments that you have available for patients, um, you know, for your animal patients who have either EDS or other um, connective tissue ab- abnormalities? Yeah, and some of this is stuff that I've come up with just in my own practice. And some of this is are things that other people have come up with. But this is kind of a collection of, of what I've found to work best. We definitely recognize that cats with EDS are just tremendously itchy. And on skin biopsy, we're recognizing more and more that they often um, have many mast cells in their skin. Um, and this is something that uh, I've worked a little bit with Ann Maitland on. Um, so it does appear that at least cats, if not other species, I know I've recognized it in one rabbit as well, have some degree of mast cell activation. So my go-to for them is to put them on amitriptyline, which is an older tricyclic antidepressant, which is an incredibly potent histamine blocker. Um, I typically combine it with gabapentin just because I find that um, the combo of amitriptyline and gabapentin works well for both pain and uh, the mast cell activation. Other things you can do to get the, the mast cell under control in animals are, are similar to humans, honestly. So Zyrtec and Zantac can definitely be used. Um, Benadryl is a fine option in animals. And then chromalin sodium is used a little bit less commonly in small animals. We do use it in a nebulized form in horses, but um, it's definitely possible. It's just not something that 
uh, I've explored because it's it's a little harder to uh, to find a, a formulation that is both palatable to an animal and is easy to dose. That makes sense. It's got to present a whole uh, unique set of challenges for sure. Can I just um, ask a question about um, the itchiness in cats? What exactly, what area, what areas of their body do, do they seem to itch more in or scratch rather more in? So really these cats um, are itchy. So pruritic everywhere. These cats are often so itchy that they'll self mutilate. So they'll chew open wounds on their sides, on their legs, but a big area for wounds and cats is is right behind their ears, just because that's typically right where their their back leg hits when they're scratching. That makes sense. Yeah, and my cat she she about... tends to. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. Now I was gonna say my cat he tends to to scratch his ears a lot, um, and then he was scratching his nose so much he like scratched the skin off. Um, uh-huh. But we're hoping it's just like a cold or mites or something. It could definitely be ear mites um, or an ear infection. I would uh, get them to your vet so they can do an ear swab. Thank you. (laughs) No problem. And then do you have thoughts on the use of vitamin C in animals? I've heard that a lot of animals produce their own vitamin C endogenously. Mm -hmm. And then humans and a few other mammals do not. And yet there's some theory or some suggestion that what causes Ehlers-Danlos and hypermobility may be related to a deficiency in vitamin C. Do you have thoughts on that and how it applies to treating animals? Animals do synthesize their own vitamin C. So um, they can synthesize it from glucose. So the only animals that don't synthesize vitamin C are guinea pigs, uh, non-human primates, fruit bats, and some birds. But, you know, if you look at like the diet of a fruit bat, for for instance, they're obviously getting a lot of vitamin C from fruit. So, you know, in my opinion, uh, supplementing vitamin C or other collagen cofactors probably doesn't make a huge difference in these animals because they're so efficient at producing their own. Um, And also because the collagen is so damaged, I just, I can't see it making a a measurable difference. That said, there is one case report um, in two EDS cats where the authors did feel like the the cats really clinically improved when they started supplementing vitamin C. I just haven't personally had that experience. So I would never say not to do it. I would just say, be very careful with the dosing. It's not a more is better situation. Animals, when you if you give them too much vitamin C, can form something called calcium oxalate stones in their bladder. Um, and with cats in particular, um, male cats often get blocked urethras. So in a, in a normal healthy cat, that's a huge emergency where it can unfortunately be fatal in a completely healthy young cat. In an EDS cat with the degree of skin fragility that they already have, I would be very worried about dealing with that situation if it were to happen. So I'm just, I'm very careful about the dosing when people do want to do it. And also some of the vitamin C formulations that are available have other additives in them. So like zinc and magnesium and those kind of things. And um, we just want to be careful not to be giving too much of, of things like zinc. And why in particular is zinc problematic when it comes to animals with vitamin C? Well, it's problematic for us too. I mean, you just can overdose on any of these, Oh, many of these things. <laughs> 
Uh, and yeah, you mentioned earlier some of the GI complications. Um, can you tell us in a little bit more detail specifically what kind of GI complications animals experience? That's obviously a big complication in humans with EDS. And so, um, yeah, the connection there is interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, the GI stuff is one that hasn't really been studied very much, but just in the, the population that I've observed, I tend to get probably about four to five emails or phone calls from from vets asking for consults a week. So I've seen a, a pretty big variety of EDS animals. I would say kind of the classic like sensitive stomach kind of uh, irritable bowel type situation is common. Hernias are pretty common. So they can get hernias through their abdominal wall. Uh, sliding hiatal hernias are common. Traumatic diaphragmatic hernias are pretty common. And then animals can get a type of hernia that people don't really get. So it's a connection between their um, their peritoneum, so the sac around their abdominal organs, and then their pericardium, so the sac around their heart. So their abdominal organs actually end up in their pericardium around their heart. So that has been reported in EDS. Occasionally, they'll get intussusceptions, so when the bowel telescopes in on itself. Uh, and then occasionally, I see like chronic diarrhea. But the GI stuff doesn't tend to be as severe as you would think it would be, given how severe it is in people. There's a, a type of horse called a Frisian horse that tends to have uh, a lot of connective tissue-like issues, but it's never uh, the genetics of it have never been traced back to EDS. But they get um, gastric impactions, so basically their stomach becomes paralyzed. So it's kind of a gastroparesis-like phenomenon. That's so interesting to hear that. Yes, there are GI complications in animals with EDS, but they may not be as severe as in humans. And the first thought that sprang to my mind is uh, most animals aren't eating fast food and, um, you know, probably doing the kind of dietary and lifestyle things that we do wrong. Are there other explanations for why their GI um, complications are not as severe? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. It may go along with the fact that animals don't really get uh, dysautonomia in the way that we do. So obviously with people, POTS is the more common type of dysautonomia that we experience with EDS. And so animals don't really get that because they don't have an upright posture like humans. So they don't get that kind of orthostatic uh, intolerance type scenario. So when animals get syncope, so fainting, it's usually due to arrhythmias, um, but it's not really due to like venous pooling or, or orthostatic intolerance. So it could be that because they don't develop that initial uh, form of dysautonomia that they don't develop secondary GI issues, because it may be that, you know, a lot of the, the issues like gastroparesis are related to the dysautonomia. Yeah, that's very interesting. That makes a lot of sense. And can you tell us a little bit about how animals with EDS and maybe in general experience pain and how we can observe that and know they're in pain and then what we can do to treat that? Yeah. So I found that, you know, we, we see a lot of the same issues we see in people. So, uh, you know, we'll definitely see lameness with the dog limping with the dogs that are hypermobile. A cat who's in pain is a little bit harder to tell. So a lot of times they'll They'll hide, they won't be as interactive, they'll sleep excessively. So things like that are often tip-offs, um, not eating as well, not playing normally, those kind of things. There's a, an awesome new pain scale in cats that was just published that looks at their facial expressions. So it's a, it's a scoring system. So it scores the position of their whiskers, the position of their ears, the position of their eyes. So 
I think things like that are really helpful because it's a more objective measure. Yeah, that's brilliant. And it seems like we need something like that for humans. Although, (laughs) as a lot of us with EDS know, that can be misleading too, because a lot of us who have lived in pain for a long time, you know, our face probably doesn't look the same as someone who's in a severe level of pain for the first time in their life. So, but it's definitely interesting. And I could see its application in the human world as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think with the cats, um, unfortunately, they get pretty used to like their skin wounds. And I also think some of the wounds that occur in cats probably aren't as painful for the EDS cats, because the um, the way that their nerves track through the skin is so abnormal because the collagen is so disorganized. Um, the kind of the route of the nerves is, is very unusual when you look at it on histology. So sometimes their, their pain response is a little strange when you're observing them in the clinic. But, you know, I do think, especially with the joint hypermobility, that they do have a lot of pain. Yeah, that's unfortunate. And what kind of medications or interventions are you using um, to help them? Yeah. So I always recommend, you know, consulting with someone who's a pain management expert. So there's a lot of great veterinary anesthesiologists who do pain management. Um, There's also a lot of palliative care specialists in veterinary medicine who, even if it's not an end of life care scenario, are really brilliant at coming up with interventions for pain management. Because like I said, it's it's not my primary field, but I think there's other people who um, can step in and help in those scenarios. But what I personally typically do is um, gabapentin and amitriptyline. And then uh, I'll use NSAIDs sparingly. So they're used a little bit more commonly in horses. Some of them like meloxicam, I'm more comfortable using in, in dogs just because they're pretty easy on the GI tract, drugs like meloxicam. Some of the NSAIDs are, are harder on the GI tract, and I would be a, a little bit more nervous in a, an EDS dog to use them. We don't use a lot of NSAIDs in cats because they lack an enzyme in the liver that they need to process them. So there are a few cat-specific NSAIDs that we'll use very sparingly, but um, we don't use them as frequently as we do in other animals. I definitely am am great with using opioids uh, as needed. Um, So we use buprenorphine a lot in cats. You have to be a little bit careful. Opioids can cause hyperthermia, so elevated body temperature in cats. Um, opioids are tough in horses, so they can cause extreme excitation and then GI stasis, so they can slow down the GI tract in horses, which for anyone who knows horses knows that's the last thing we want. But there are a few of them that we use pretty often and that, and that work pretty well in horses. And then, you know, drugs like tramadol used to be used all the time, which tramadol is an opioid, but there are more and more papers that have come out that have shown that it, it's not very effective in small animals. So we use it kind of less and less. But like I said, there are a few opioids that we use that work pretty well. The, the issue with them in small animals, sort of like in horses, is that they often cause something called dysphoria, which basically means kind of a severe feeling of unease or unwell. So a lot of the animals get really scared and will vocalize and um, sort of act like they don't know where they are. So we want to use a low enough dose that the animal feels safe and comfortable, but you know, a high enough dose that they're getting pain relief. So it can be a little bit of a balancing act. Um, And then other options um, are similar to humans. So we definitely have options for orthopedic braces for the limbs. Physical therapy, I always recommend. I think it's an amazing option for any animal. Shockwave therapy, prolotherapy, mesotherapy, platelet-rich plasma, uh, cold laser, chiropractor, acupuncture, massage, <clears throat> kinesiotaping, TENS unit. We do, you know, all of that stuff. I think it's a, it's a little bit more common in equine medicine, so um, with horses than it is with small animals. But 
Um, I, you know, I think it's gaining popularity in the small animal world as well. And I think as long as it's done really carefully with the skin fragility in small animals, then it's, um, it's a good option. Definitely. And I guess, do you have thoughts on the kind of newer wave type treatments? Like, you know, I've been getting prolotherapy and PRP, um, but those kind of other uh, adjunct therapies, do you have thoughts on their use for animals? Yeah, I mean, they've been um, pretty common therapies for years in horses. So sport horses that are competing often get those therapies. And, you know, I can't really comment because I haven't used them in animals with EDS, but I I think they're um, an interesting option and they would definitely be something that I'm game to try. Uh, Like I said, I would be a little bit nervous in some of the small animals with the really extreme skin fragility, just because any injection is a little bit scary. But uh, I think that they would potentially be beneficial if they could be done safely. And then what about the use of other treatments that are useful or at least often used in humans like glucosamine and chondroitin? What are your thoughts on those? Yeah, so I think those are great. Any way we can protect the joints long term, I'm, I'm totally all for. And I think for any of these alternative uh, therapies, I definitely recommend talking to someone who's boarded in, in rehab medicine in, in veterinary medicine. So it's similar to um, like a physiatrist in human medicine. So those are the people that have the most experience with rehabilitation settings, the most experience with doing these kind of treatments with doing like the underwater treadmill, shockwave, TENS unit, all that stuff. So they're, they're really the experts. And I think they're the people who should be called upon to, to help in these situations. Yeah, absolutely. And underwater treadmill sounds fantastic. I got to find one of those for human use. <laughs> oh, yeah. We have a great uh, animal physical therapist close by who she has a underwater treadmill. She does a lot of work with them. Um, with tufts, with their um, spine dogs who have spine surgery, and she she has great luck, and the dogs seem to really like it. Cats are a little bit trickier with the water treadmill. Yeah, I bet you know they use the expression like herding cats, and I, yeah, that immediately comes to mind. But it's very interesting because for me, I think the I get exercise induced hives. And so being in water when doing exercise, it just kind of immediately calms that down, like having a little bit of coolness against that reaction um, is very helpful. So I wonder for animals that have mast cell type problems, you know, if it's sort of uniquely um, beneficial the same way it appears to be for me. So Um, yeah, and then when it comes to anesthesia, I know that's kind of a a very different subject then for anesthesia for humans, but could you tell us a little bit about the specific considerations um, and things to be aware of when you're doing anesthesia with animals that have EDS or connective tissue disorders? Yeah, I mean, it's very similar to humans, honestly. And I'll say that um, when a colleague and I were kind of first coming up with our protocol that we've been using, we looked at Dr. Bluestein's chapter um, in the disjointed book because we weren't totally sure what we should be doing. But you know, things that we have worried about, I I can't say we've experienced them, but we've been concerned about them have been um, tracheal tears during intubation. We've we've definitely thought a lot about that. Difficult intubations are something that I think are definitely possible in these animals, just because they do tend to have kind of quote unquote floppy airways. And then we're very careful with ventilation, just because I do worry about uh, creating a pneumothorax. Other considerations, you know, um, how we position them during surgery. I try to think a lot about moving them while they're under anesthesia. I try to think a lot about just because, you know, I don't want to injure a hypermobile joint while I'm uh, transferring an animal from a gurney to a table or something like that. 
you know, another consideration is I really um, kind of discourage the use of local anesthesia. I think as vets, we rely on it a lot, which is great. And I think it's an awesome uh, means for pain management. But while there haven't really been any studies done on local anesthesia like lidocaine in animals with EDS, I'm just not confident that it will work well, especially given the severity of the disorganization of collagen and their skin. Um, and given what we know about its uh, poor kind of utility in humans with EDS, I just, I don't really trust it. So I rarely use it in these guys. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. And kind of along the lines of anesthesia consideration, there's been a lot of talk of the use of ketamine uh-huh. for for various pain and depression treatments. Um, And I know it's been used in anesthesia forever. Um, Do you have thoughts of its use in the animal context or is it too soon to sell? Too soon to tell. Oh, we use it all the time in veterinary medicine. I think we've been using it as longer, longer than human medicine. So we use it for most surgeries that are known to be uh, fairly painful procedures, a lot of vets will use a ketamine uh, CRI, so a ketamine constant rate infusion. Um, and it's very common to use it during uh, the post-op period after surgery to do a, another constant rate infusion of ketamine. It's an amazing drug in terms of pain management. So I'm, I'm all for using ketamine as much as possible. That's really interesting. And do you find, are there side effects when you use it with animals or complications? Or on the other hand, do you notice, do they seem to feel better for longer afterwards versus something like an opioid or again, too soon to tell possibly? I think too soon to tell. And I have to say, I mean, I'm definitely not a surgeon or an anesthesiologist, so I'm probably not the the expert on it, but it seems like animals get a little bit less issues with ketamine in terms of less of the dysphoria and less of the um, opioid related issues that we see with um, other drugs that we commonly use after surgery, which is um, things like fentanyl. So That's really interesting because that's certainly consistent with my experience. I've had quite a few surgeries. I think it's 13, but I've kind of lost count at a certain point. Um, and I've asked to be treated surgically with ketamine instead of opioids after surgery. And I find the experience is much more improved. I don't get that sedation. It, it seems to kind of put me on the healing track. Sooner. Yeah, I, um, I just did a tethered cord surgery with a friend of mine who's a vet neurologist on a dog. Um, it was actually the first intradural tethered cord release that's ever been done on a dog. But we, um, wow. we used ketamine on her intra-op and post-op and she did really, really amazing. She bounced back really quickly. So I think that was a good choice. Okay. Um, So I just was wondering really quick, I know you mentioned that it can be really expensive to adopt an animal with EDS. Do, Do you know if there's any programs at facilities that might care for EDS animals that, you know, you can perhaps come and volunteer to hang out with them or play with them? Or Because I wonder, do they get do these animals perhaps get more lonely than other animals since maybe they're not getting adopted as much? Well, so there's not really, um, there aren't any, really any facilities that have a large number of them, at least to my knowledge. Um, you know, certainly there have been periods of time in the like 80s and 90s where there were colonies of them that were used for research, but that's not really going on currently. And, uh, you know, there's so few and far between in terms of when the cases pop up and 
you know, like when I talk to, to vets who are treating them, they're really all over the country and all over the world. So in the past few months, I've talked to owners in Australia, Russia, Romania, uh, England, France, Germany. So, I mean, I, there's not really like a, a constellation of cases in any one area. So I think when they do pop up in animal shelters, they are put up for adoption. And I actually think they're adopted very quickly because it, it's become a little bit of a social media phenomenon um, to get special needs cats, which is great. But I, I just want to be sure people know, you know, kind of what they're getting into in terms of the expense. Yeah, I saw I saw an article about a cat named Toby recently that had become, you know, adopted. And then he became like the face of EDS animals or something recently. Mm-hmm. Had that really loose skin. Yes, his mom is very nice. She's um, very so yeah, I'm not Toby's veterinarian or at all affiliated with his care, but I have spoken to her. Um, so yeah, I think following kind of his fame and a few other um, famous EDS cats, things kind of took off in terms of people wanting them. Um, so, you know, yeah, I think it's great to adopt any special needs animal, but again, um, I say maybe budget around one or 2000 a month for these guys, if it's a, a more severe case. That's definitely good to give people awareness of because they are so cute and your heart just goes out to them. But if you're not in the right place to care for them, either financially or physically or otherwise, that can be setting up kind of a disastrous situation. So hopefully in part their their Instagram notoriety will raise the uh, awareness of EDS one way or the other. And, you know, maybe that'll translate to human care, you know, human interest um down the line so we can hope i guess (laughs) well and the skin is um you know is the biggest issue and i don't think we really talked about treatment for the skin but you know after you get the mast cell under control there's still a lot that you have to do just to take care of their skin on a daily basis so like with the cats they typically have to wear clothing they can't really be allowed to groom so like with reed i have to bathe him Unfortunately, while I'm very anti-declawing in general, I do recommend at least a hind declaw on these cats just because um, anytime they scratch, you know, they're unfortunately going to really traumatize their skin. So some people have been able to use nail caps effectively on them, but most of them, in order to live kind of a a happy, stable life, they need to be declawed in the hind end. And then, you know, you have to be so careful with every aspect of their care. So flea prevention, I tell people like not to use the topical flea preventions, it can cause their skin to slough off. And then with the horses, there are a lot of lifestyle adjustments that can be made very successfully. So um, unfortunately, as a lot of us with EDS know, uh, UV light is not our friend. So sunshine is not really our friend because uh, the sun damages collagen. So you know, you want to make sure the horses are going outside at night rather than in the daytime, um, practice good fly control, do things like hose their skin off um, with water instead of brushing them to prevent trauma. You know, all those things can definitely be done. Um, you just have to make some accommodations. That's a really good point. And again, of course, knowing the distinction between veterinary medicine and human medicine, um, that line being there, I certainly notice. Um, my skin is much more, and I, you know, being hypermobile, even not one of the even sort of skin stretchier types, I notice how sensitive my skin is to just about everything. And so I can only imagine that, um, for an animal who doesn't have the explanation for what's going on, they just want to relieve the itch. You know, when I have that impulse to 
itch or to scratch. Um, you know, cognitively, I know that's something I shouldn't be doing, but that's something you can't convince an animal of. So <laughs> that'd create some very unique complications for sure. Yeah. Dr. McElroy, I just have one question. So because you are a patient yourself with EDS, do you find that you can kind of understand better how to treat animals with EDS? We mentioned how a lot of times people with EDS, it takes a long time for them to get diagnosed. And before that, they often have trouble convincing doctors that something's wrong with them. So do you feel like you kind of have a better idea of what to look for and then just how to be sympathetic and empathetic to their needs? Yeah, I think so. I mean, with these cases, um, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, they tend to be diagnosed fairly quickly just because um, the issues with their skin are so severe it, that it's not something where people are saying like, oh, I, you know, I don't believe you um, because it, it's fairly apparent that something's wrong. But yeah, I mean, I think both as a patient and then both as a researcher who's worked with a lot of amazing um specialist uh, MDs in the EDS world. So um, people like Dr. Klinga, Dr. Maitland, Dr. Um, Frank Amano, Dr. Henderson. Um, I have a pretty good idea of, you know, what treatments are effective in people. And I've been able to apply some of those treatments to animals, um, which I think has, has helped me a lot in my career. That's so interesting about the how it's obvious with animals. And there's not the issue of being believed because uh, at least in my experience, and I think um, in a lot of EDS ex- uh, patients' experience, our, our symptoms are equally observable. Right. And yet, for whatever reason, um, you know, maybe the fact that animals can't communicate, you know, there's more of a sense of relying on just the the kind of hard facts. But I think a lot of us EDS patients are very well informed, often very educated very linguistically talented and we can describe our pain and we can describe our symptoms. And it's almost a double-edged sword because it leads to doctors suspecting that it can't really be that bad if we can be that cognitively with it. So that's, it's interesting because so many of the symptoms that you've mentioned, you know, the, the anxiety, the pain symptoms, the itching, you know, that that's very much the experience of so many patients with EDS. And yet we struggle to get, um, physicians to believe and that that can be very painful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, speaking of anxiety and EDS, there was an awesome study published recently by uh, Jonathan Bowen, where um, Antonio Balbino was a co-author who some of you know from him coming on this podcast. But basically what they did was they looked at um, about 5,500 working dogs. So these were dogs that were going to go on to be seeing eye dogs. And they screened them with a very common uh, screening tool in, uh, in the veterinary world called the pin-hip score. And basically what it looks for is um, hypermobility of the hip joint in dogs. Um, and then they used a behavioral assessment on those dogs called the Canine Behavioral Assessment Research Questionnaire, which looks at personality traits in dogs. And what they found was that um, there was an association between hypermobility and excitability, which they um, they decided was related to increased arousal. So basically what they were saying was the more hypermobile dogs were more anxious or had more um, like sympathetic arousal, which obviously uh, relates to our human experience with EDS. Absolutely. When I heard that, that really struck me because as someone with two severely hypermobile hips that resulted in tears and needed um, surgical correction, 
that just immediately resonated with me because I think, you know, that caused and still causes a great deal of anxiety and not knowing the cause of it um, kind of perpetuates that anxiety further. So knowing that even dogs experience this, you know, led me to believe this isn't just social or just cultural or just my upbringing. You know, this appears to be almost a, a mammalian response to too loose of key joints. So. Right. And they show that hypermobility was more common in female dogs, which, I mean, we would expect given the effect of testosterone on um, joint stability, but in muscle mass, but still, I mean, yeah. it does go with the human experience of it being more common in, in women. Exactly. I was just going to say that. That's so crazy. Is there some co- correlation between there and in terms of the gender? Yeah, I mean, so in, in people, it's more common, hypermobile EDS is more commonly diagnosed in women, but there's always been the thought that testosterone has a, a protective effect in men just because they have greater muscle mass and more kind of support around their joints due to that. It's interesting in animals because some um, vets have had the thought that maybe they won't uh, neuter male cats and dogs with EDS because they want them to have the effect of testosterone because men have skin that's much thicker than women due to testosterone. So their thought was that they could protect the skin by (laughs) giving them a a bigger dose of testosterone, which it'll be kind of interesting to see how that pans out. There's kind of the the downside to that, which is, you know, intact male animals are often a little bit more rambunctious. Um, And we've seen with some of the intact male horses that aren't castrated, that they tend to tear up their skin a little bit more, both through chewing on their skin and through, you know, kind of rough play. But I think it's a really interesting idea. And it's very interesting how gender kind of plays into the whole situation. Absolutely. It's an, it's an incredibly interesting observation. And I'm reminded there's this uh, study that came out in the journal Nature, um, which for listeners who aren't aware of it, it's one of the key uh, scientific research journals. And um, the, the title of the article is Why It Hurts Less to Be a Man. Um, and again, this is no way belittling to men. Men have EDS and it can be very painful to them. Um, you know, and so we're not in any way taking that away, but in general, this article and the research, um, supported by it concludes that men are less sensitive than women to pain. And the, um, theory behind this is that testosterone masks feelings of discomfort while on the opposite estrogen, you know, may heighten them. And um, just anecdotally, we all kind of realize that estrogen is responsible for making females' bodies able to expand and contract to accommodate, you know, whether it's, you know, just the menstrual cycle or the accommodation of a a growing fetus. Um, So there's just a lot more bending and movement in, in the female body in general, very generally speaking, you know, there's obvious exceptions to this. Um, uh, but it's certainly interesting in terms of that comparison with animals as well. Yeah, definitely. So I think, you know, something to be aware of is that the diagnosis of EDS in animals is still somewhat similar to to people in terms of it's a clinical diagnosis in a lot of animals. So, um, we have a commercial genetic test for two forms of, uh, EDS in horses, but, in small animals, uh, the genetic testing is only available on a research basis. So most vets know how to do something called a skin extensibility index, which is a very specific uh, measurement that's associated with a 
mathematical formula where we measure kind of how much the skin along the top of the back stretches and divide that by the length from the head to the tail base and multiply it by 100. Um, and we have cutoffs for each species. So like greater than 14.5% abnormal in dogs, greater than 19% abnormal in cats and so on. So it's kind of like the bite and scale. It's suggestive of EDS. Um, and then we typically recommend doing a skin biopsy. You know, with that histology is only suggestive. Um, you you want to get into to more like electron microscopy for a more definitive diagnosis, which is cost prohibitive for a lot of people. And it's difficult to find somewhere to do it. So at this point, a lot of animals who have been diagnosed have mostly had a, a clinical diagnosis just based on their um, specific subset of symptoms. Definitely. And that appears to be the case for most humans as well. <laughs> a lot of us, it appears, could benefit from, you know, full genome sequencing. But again, the cost at this point is prohibitive. But maybe, if, you know, awareness spreads about the need in both the animal and human populations. Maybe there's hope that that will change in the future, I mm-hmm. guess, hope at the least. Um, and then you've mentioned some of the neurologic concerns Um, the Chiari-like malformations um, and other issues. But I guess, could you give us just kind of a brief overview of the neurologic concerns for um, animals with EDS in general? Yeah, so I mean, this is something that I'm studying currently, and we really don't know if any of these um, conditions are more likely to occur in animals with EDS. As I said earlier, um, I looked at tethered cord in horses for my master's. And what we found was that the phylum, so the the part of the spine that tethers, um, was abnormal in horses with EDS, but um, they didn't really have any symptoms of tethering. So even though it was abnormal, it didn't seem like it was bothering them. But we are recognizing tethered cord more and more in dogs and cats. You know, it, it hasn't been associated yet with EDS, but it does occur in them. And Chiari malformation is incredibly common in dogs. It does occur in cats as well, as well as syringomyelia, so um, fluid collection within the spinal cord. So all of these things occur in animals. It may just be that um, we haven't really recognized it yet in, in EDS animals because we've been kind of too busy focusing on the skin and the joints. You know, in vet school, same, similar to doctors and, and medical school, we're really shown like one or two slides about EDS, and it's usually a picture of a puppy's skin being stretched really far. And um, that's where kind of the rubber puppy um, syndrome name comes from. It's a little bit of a joke still and a little bit of the kind of uh, more like freak show nomenclature of it's just stretchy skin and contortionists. And that's so funny, because my a good friend of mine is a neurologist. uh, And in medical school, he said the only reference to EDS he ever remembered hearing was on one group of slides, they showed a basketball player. And they said, if you hear EDS, do a full heart workup. And full stop. That was the only information. So it's so interesting to hear that, uh, both on the veterinary side and the, um, the medical, you know, human medical side, that there's the same kind of lack of detailed information. Right. So it may just be that some of these more, um, subtle complications like the neurologic complications just haven't been picked up on because people weren't really aware to look for them. Although my classmates were made to sit through probably a hundred EDS presentations when I was a student in vet school. And I did have one professor who told me that he would give me an A if I could present on something other than EDS in his class. Um, So, you know, I think people are becoming more and more aware of it. I know three of my vet school classmates have diagnosed cases and two of the residents that I worked with when I was a student have have diagnosed cases since I was in school. So I think, you know, if you know what to look for, um, 
you can find them. They're, we're out there and, you know, we'll be able to. Absolutely. And I think that folds back into our early, earlier conversation about how with animals, because all the data is seen as objective because they can't speak, there's mm-hmm. a better ability to recognize symptoms. But for whatever reason, um, women in particular really struggle to convince physicians of the seriousness of their symptoms. And there's been you know, a lot of literature about that. Um, Maya Dusenberry wrote the book Doing Harm about all the ways in which um, women are treated differently in the medical institution than men. And uh, it's, it's a real shame, I guess, that uh, our, our linguistic ability appears to be, in some instances, you know, where it's an uninformed doctor and, and that kind of thing, um, can actually kind of work against us. And that's too bad. We almost want some kind of objective assessment. And in a way, you'd think the Biden score and the triptase test and these kind of things would provide that. But the, you know, human medicine school is very rigid in its um, beliefs and practices and takes quite a while to change, unfortunately. No, I agree. And um, as I said before, I I primarily work as a postdoctoral research associate with uh, Dr. Klinga, but I do work three nights a week in in small animal clinical practice. Um, And I will say it's very interesting how pain is viewed in in veterinary medicine. It's it's viewed very objectively and there's no, you know, second guessing or anything like that. It's just this animal is in pain, period. And what are we going to do about it? And um, I find that it's a very different experience than how pain is discussed in, in human medicine. Do you think it's because that, do you think it's because there isn't like the sort of gender bias among animals that there could exist in humans? Maybe, you know, I think we definitely have animals that aren't as stoic as others. And sometimes we'll talk about that. Like, such and such animals being a little bit dramatic, but it's never not believed. And I don't know if that has to do with, with gender. Like sometimes, let's say at a vaccine appointment, like a lot of times puppies and kittens are very dramatic about their vaccines. But, you know, it's never a question of if their vaccines hurt or not. But that too, it's interesting, right? Because um, younger humans also react more dramatically to these kinds of incidents. And part of its life experience Probably, you know, the more shots you've had, the less dramatic you probably are. Although not necessarily, right? Like your individual pain level or comfort level with the, you know, some pets have real strong reactions to one gender or Mm -hmm. an age. My cat, you know, if there's any man that ever comes near her, she bolts immediately. So they all have these kind of ingrained reactions and you wonder the extent to which that manifests in the visit. And then it makes you think about the ways that we humans have the same sort of hardwired, non-logical, but limbic system driven uh, responses. It's true. And, you know, I mean, I think with the EDS animals, they definitely have responses that are similar to what I see in, in people with EDS. We already talked about the anxiety, but I know with my own cat, his startle response is just insane. It's definitely on a hair trigger. Like if I pull tinfoil out of a box and he hears the noise, he just like drops to the floor like he's been shot. I mean, it's such an insanely overblown response that I think his sympathetic nervous system is just really on a hair trigger. And then, you know, half a second later, he's fine. But I think he just gets that huge surge of adrenaline in the moment, which is very similar to what a lot of EDS uh, patients experience. So 
you know, I think that a lot of animals probably have some degree of anxiety responses or responses related to their um, autonomic nervous system that we just, you know, don't really recognize as being any different than the norm. But, you know, it all comes down to whatever the response is, nobody's questioning it or, or not believing it or thinking they shouldn't have pain medication or be treated or whatever. And that's such a great observation to add, because when you told me that initially, it reassured me because I have such a dramatic startle response. Like I was doing laundry in the basement and my best friend just stepped up behind me and I hadn't heard her coming. And I not only jumped, but I kind of yelled and she looked at me like, geez, that's a dramatic reaction to seeing me. But it just in general, that sympathetic nervous system, I think for me and a lot of patients that I've spoken to and um, have heard from and seen in the research, it seems that we have that over-exaggerated response. And so again, like the dog hip laxity thing, mm-hmm. the cat startle response thing makes me think, hmm, it's not just me. It's not just my culture or my traumas or whatever. This might be you know, a genetic mammalian response to whatever EDS really is. Right. You know, I hadn't heard that before. I never actually wasn't aware of the sympathetic correlation between EDS and perhaps anxiety and other uh, symptoms like that. That's really interesting. And I, I too have had, you know, those issues as well. And so I never, you know, thought it could be related to EDS. Yeah, I mean, there was one study that showed the amygdala is larger in um, hypermobile patients. So that's a part of the brain that's involved in um, anxiety. But a lot of people feel that it's uh, kind of related to the the dysautonomia issue of, you know, your autonomic nervous system and the the fight or flight response kind of always being on and that sympathetic nervous system being a little bit overactive. Absolutely. Well, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Thank you so much to Dr. Abby McElroy for joining us today. And thanks to Nia Clark, um, our special correspondent. This was a great conversation. Uh, We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And we'll see you next time on the Hypermobility Happy Hour. Bye.